Hey Brian. Hi Dan. Hey listeners, welcome to the 51st episode of The Goods, a film podcast. How we doing, Brian? Pretty good. I've been going through all the footage from the Florida trip that we took a week or so back. Um, polishing it up. So I'll hit you guys with that link somewhere soon, assuming we have some kind of multimedia component. Yeah. Listeners can go back and hear our 50th episode spectacular. We talked a little bit about that trip and how it was sort of a culmination of our year so far, which brings me to the big exciting milestone for us because we've had two kind of one-off episodes, episode 51 here. That brings us to a year. In fact, by my count, this is September 13th. We're recording. I think we recorded our first episode September 9th. So cheers, Brian. We made it a year. Hey, congratulations. Auld Lang sign and all that. Indeed. So we're in fall and fall is, of course, the start of school. We're not quite in spooky season, although the stores would have you believe otherwise do you do you consider it spooky season early september well i'm in full mode i i get to like take a breather because i my halloween show is always due september 20th so like i get super into it early in september and then i almost have like a two-week like burnout break and then go back into it when october actually begins right so it's like you get it in phases basically right So I think of September as like not quite spooky season. And certainly we're, you know, barely a week from Labor Day. That's the start of school. And anyone who's listened to this podcast will know I really like high school movies. Uh, I've seen a lot of them. I found some lists online. It was the 50 greatest high school movies. And I had seen something like 30 of them. So That's not comprehensive, but that's probably a higher ratio than you would have for just about any other subgenre of movies you were looking at for for me to have high coverage of seeing the great ones. So um, what are some of the good high school movies we've talked about, Brian? That we've talked about? Um, Well, we had American Graffiti. We had not Fault in Our Stars. The other John Green one, Paper Towns. That's right. Yeah. What else have we had? High School Musicals. Oh, yes, for sure. That's got it in the name. Uh, maybe there. Oh, some kind of wonderful. There you go. So do you have any favorite high school movies, Brian? I guess it kind of I see a lot of movies when you see these lists are like borderline high school movies. Like, do you consider Back to the Future a high school movie, for example? Yeah, it's like how prominent is high school? Actually, in the first one, pretty prominent. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's got the dance and it's got... Um, like a lot of the setting is at or near the school. Yes, yeah, so I would I would count the first one. I think that counts as a high school movie, but there's more to it. Um, I, I'm going to throw Napoleon Dynamite into the mix. Uh, <laughs> this is the time of year when I crank. I can tell that we are going to be friends. The opening theme from Napoleon Dynamite. Nice. Yeah, we might get a few more in here. I, I mean, if, as long as we keep doing it and I keep having the opportunity to suggest movies, I can guarantee we'll continue to have some high school picks in here so yeah i mean nothing wrong with that this is all about maintaining the balance of power so <laughs> i expect it the movie i ask you to watch is a 
high school movie that I had not seen, but I had heard good things about. And that is the movie Brick from 2005, directed by Ryan Johnson. I want to talk about him in a bit. And starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt as a character named Brendan. It's a mystery noir set in a high school. We'll talk a little bit about some of the wrinkles of that setting and that style for sure. But Joseph Gordon-Levitt was a fairly fresh face at this point. He was not the bona fide A-minus list movie star that he is today. Yeah, you know, he had been on uh, Third Rock from the Sun. Right. I was reading a review that came out when this movie was released, and some of the framing was, wow, that Third Rock kid is going to be starring in dramas? That's so weird. And I don't know, (laughs) I guess I started following movies really closely in college, which was just a year or two after this movie came out. And so, like, for me, he was just on the verge of being established, already kind of established by the time that I was really paying close attention to movies. So having a recent movie where that's kind of not taken for granted is just kind of bizarre for me. Let's see. So Ryan Johnson, that's R-I-A-N Johnson has become something of a ascendant star director over the past five-ish years, five to ten-ish years. But at this point, he was still kind of an indie darling. This was, I think, his debut feature-length film, and he has subsequently done a few others. What do we know Ryan Johnson from? Well, if I'm being honest, the one that comes to mind is Last Jedi. For sure. I think that's the one that's going to jump to mind. So how do you feel about Last Jedi, Brian? I actually have never seen it. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> not a good judge. I, I haven't watched eight or nine. Right. I quite liked eight Last Jedi by Ryan Johnson. I thought it was probably the best of the trilogy. Well, that's not too much of an accomplishment, but. Yeah, I, I don't know. I really liked episode seven and episode eight. I really did not like episode nine, but. Um, I kind of feel like they got, I don't know, too much of a bad rap. I think in like 10 years, we're going to circle back on them just a little bit. Not completely. They're certainly incoherent as a trilogy, but there's a lot of good filmmaking and star power in those movies. So I I don't say I stand them, but I still stick up for them a little bit. And I think in particular, I've only seen Last Jedi once, and I know people are fond of picking apart the plots and some of the themes and some of the bloat, but I really enjoyed it when I watched it. I think it has some of the most striking moments and visuals in the the new trilogy. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen it. I mean, I, I know from early on, like the return of the Jedi days, Harrison Ford wanted out. He's like, kill me off, kill me off, George. I don't want to do these movies anymore. And so it made sense that he got killed off in uh, in seven. But I told myself, if I find out that they kill Luke in eight, I'm not going to watch. And sure enough, that's what happened. So interesting. I mean, I, I have not watched the films myself, but I really think they made an effort to call all the old IP and make it all exclusively Disney. That's what they've got at the theme park. You know, they got to make up their own planet. Can't be can't be Hoth. It's got to be Batu. So I don't know. I have pretty strong feelings about buying out a franchise and then axing all the iconic parts of it so that you can say it's yours. Uh, It's kind of the same way I feel about Netflix original season four of Arrested Development. 
it's like, well, it's not really original. I mean, it kind of is in a bad way, but you're buying something all based on name recognition and then trying to say, oh, look at what I made. We should talk Star Wars for a full pod sometime because my reaction is almost exactly the opposite of yours. I don't like it when people try to re- reboot things, but then they cling too strong to the nostalgia and don't try to do interesting new things with it. Like I like the Star Wars universe and the lore and having some connection to the universe, but every time they brought out the old people for too much, I was like, give us the new characters. Let's let them develop and have their own stories. Sure. But I mean, I think at that point it's like create a new franchise. I I don't know. I, I think there's something different between one creator, man. I don't know. You know, we need more written out notes. (laughs) But when one person takes over like the mantle of an old property, it's, it's going to be a different voice. It's going to be not the same understanding of what it is. I don't know. I, I, I think the idea of even keeping a franchise alive for decades and decades is maybe not healthy. Sure. Like maybe we need a new story. I suppose. Yeah. But we're, we've, we've reached a point in Hollywood where, you know, to, justify the huge budgets that are needed you need to have a bankable intellectual property like to fill the seats people need to know the name and so we end up where we are where everything's sequels and remakes and that's not entirely a new state of affairs i mean it's been building for a very long time there have been sequels since the beginning of movies yeah i guess my thought is if why even make it a star wars movie like why still cling to that franchise there are certain things about the Star Wars universe that really are iconic and appealing, like everything from the lightsabers, the Jedi, the space operatic tone. Like if you know what Star Wars is, to me, that's not necessarily specific characters, but it's like elements of a universe even more so than that. But I say we we put a pin in this. I think we could have a good conversation about it sometime. What do you think? Yeah, I think so too. Unless you wanted to make one last point. I was just going to say, I think that, and this is going to be the the standard order, like message board edgelord opinion, but I, I think Mandalorian strikes a pretty happy balance. I actually haven't seen Mandalorian. I'd like to. Like <laughs> what I think he does well, uh, Favreau and, and his team is like pull in aliens from the cantina. It's like, let's have a story about a Deveronian. Like the the devil guy that was in the cantina, and it's it's like a new story, but it's an element that we are kind of familiar with. Interesting. So yeah, to me, it feels more of a bastardization to make it a TV show than to introduce new t- new characters. But then again, I haven't seen any of like the the heralded Disney Plus original TV shows, unless you count High School Musical, the musical, the series, which I don't think is in the same prestige tier, but. We should determine what the correct Star Wars movie is for us to some point pick as a uh, springboard for our our Star Wars thoughts. I agree. Pivoting back to Ryan Johnson, he had another big hit in 2019. That was Knives Out. Did you catch up with this one? I haven't seen that one. It's the one where Daniel Craig plays a Sherlock Holmesy detective, but he's got a like Southern Drawl, what's the name of Foghorn Leghorn? Is that the name of the uh, chicken dude in Looney Tunes, the big old chicken dude? Right. Yeah, he talks like that in this movie. And it's a big ensemble whodunit. Oh, interesting. I, I do know 
this is something I learned in the last couple of days because you told me. Ryan Johnson actually made Looper, which is another film starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Right. One that I am pretty fond of overall. Yeah, I think it came up in the context of time loops. Yeah, it's not exactly a time loop movie, but it involves past and future version of the same character. So it's got uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis. His only other feature-length film, to my knowledge at least, is a movie called The Brothers Bloom. So this is... I thought of it, and I we might have even talked about it. I don't think we talked about it on air, but we might have talked about it offline. This is another movie starring Mark Ruffalo that is kind of a heisty movie, I think. I don't know if there's magic or like cards or some sort of visual deception involved in The Brothers Bloom, but it stars Mark Ruffalo and definitely came to mind when we were talking about Now You See Me. That's another one I'd like to see sometime, but... On to Brick, 2005, I guess, is the year it came out. Although I, all the reviews I read were mostly dated in 2006. I think it was one of those ones that came out in a festival in 05 and a wide release in 06. But I'll mark it as an 05 year because that's what IMDb has. So I didn't really know too much about this movie. I knew that it had a mystery element to it. What I did not know is it is a full-on hard-boiled detective film noir story. We talked about hard-boiled detectives and film noir in a much earlier episode. We watched the classic noir DOA, and we've referenced that one several times. Brian, were you expecting a a full-fledged film noir when, when you pulled this one up? So I had never even heard of this movie before. This one was new to me. Although I think I did Google it before I watched it and it mentioned it was a noir or a neo-noir, which basically means like anything that tries to ape the old style that has come out since like 1970. Kind of the classic example of a neo-noir that people hold up is Chinatown with Jack Nicholson. Right. And yeah, it was interesting because it's very much set in the modern time of 2005, but it retains a lot of stylistic trappings of the old film tropes yeah definitely it does have a certain element of timelessness to it there's a cell phone but it kind of has we can talk about some of them it has both the language that does not feel very 05 and just a lot of the stuff doesn't necessarily tie it to its modern time some interesting stylistic things there's just it almost feels like I'm just going to bring this reference point out because I think it's really prominent. It feels very Twin Peaksy to me, where you have this sort of story in a town where it could basically be, maybe minus a couple of details, could be any time from like 1950 to present day, basically. And it starts out with a dead blonde girl lying face down in water. So right from the first shot, you know, it's Twin Peaks. I picked up on it too. Definitely. Part of the reason I bring up here that it is a noir is because one thing we talked about in DOA is these hard-boiled detective stories are more about the kinetic motion of the story as opposed to the coherency of the plot itself. I read one review that basically said, like any good noir, 15 minutes in, you're going to have no idea what's going on. And 90 minutes in, you're going to have even less idea what's going on. Yeah, it's all about introducing a bunch of characters who are nebulously connected and 
maybe they're not who they say they are. So it's all about twists and turns and, and moving from venue to venue. Betrayals. Yeah, for sure. They often leave me feeling like confused at best and stupid at worst. <laughs> um, but we'll see if that happens with this one. I, I didn't give DOA a super high rating, but we'll see what happens here. To the point that this story is more about the motion of the story, I'm going to not hit every single plot point here. I'm going to try to hit the high level ones. We can kind of glaze over it because no one twist is any more important than the other. I think one mistake that I made in the DOA episode was to try and tease out every single betrayal and piece it all together. But that's not what's going to necessarily give you value in a noir. So I'll hit the high points and then feel free to fill in the cracks as we go, Brian. Sure. So this movie starts in medias race, as you mentioned, where we see Gordon Levitt's character, Brendan encountering what seems to be a corpse, a dead blonde girl near a storm drain. The first time I watched this scene, it was, I thought it was at enough of a distance that it wasn't quite quite clear that she was dead. I rewatched the scene and, I think it is pretty clear that we're supposed to know that she is dead, not just passed out. Like there's a lot of cues for that, but I was curious if it was going to do some twist on us where she wasn't actually dead, but she definitely is here. And then it almost immediately cuts back two days. We get a little text blurb saying we're, we're back in time. Brendan follows a note in his locker to a phone booth where he answers the phone and it is Emily. Um, we're going to quickly learn that Emily is some sort of ex-lover, someone that Brendan is fond of, but has now drifted from for some reason. And as she's on the phone, she's panicking. She's discussing some things that he has no idea what they are. A brick. They said the thing like three minutes in. And someone or something named Tug and the pin, and uh, Brendan is very confused, as is the viewer at this point. Although, I mean, with all the weird slang we get in this movie, brick is pretty common. I knew what a brick was. Sure. Um, I've definitely heard that term before. It was almost a letdown that it was the thing that I thought it was going to be. Yeah, exactly. Which is container of drugs. Spoiler. I will say there's a lot of payphones in this movie, which is like already a dated thing by 2005, but I suppose they were still around at that point. Now you'd be hard pressed to find one. Right. Shortly thereafter, we actually see Emily and Emily we recognize to be the young woman we saw in the storm drain during the film's opening scene, setting off our alarm bells that she might actually be in as much trouble as she seemed to be in that panicked phone call. Brendan starts doing some digging with the help of a character who I think only ever gets named the brain and he is Brendan's friend, but also this kind of weird insider guy who always has the Intel is a very interesting character. Yeah. I like him. Anytime you've got a, the brain I'm on board, <laughs> whether it's pinky in the brain or the brain on Arthur, I'm in, but it's in this first conversation with the brain character that I really started to notice the weird stylistic dialogue in this movie. It's like very clearly trying to ape 
Dashiell Hammett dialogue from the, the 40s or the 50s, whenever the old school noir tropes were being you know, laid out in the first go round. I should have written down more specific examples, but at one point, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is like, I'm starting to get visible. I need you on the underneath. So it's just constantly like weird turns of phrase like that. And it kind of alienated me at first. Uh, what it made me think of was the 1996 Romeo and Juliet, where it's Leo as Romeo in like present day California. And they all have guns and gangster stuff, but they're still speaking Shakespearean English. It's not quite as extreme as that, but that was the, the cue my mind was jumping to. Just this out of place, uh, Dan wrote Argot in our notes. And I, I think that's a good word for it. Yeah, unlike you, I was immediately very fond of this dialogue style because I don't know, it was just very stylized and kind of on the surface, kind of silly, but had this classical earnestness to it and just a prettiness about the phrases they were turning. I don't I just I dug it. Here, here's I pulled up a couple here. At one point, he's talking down some dope heads and he says, I've got all five senses and I slept last night. That puts me six up on the lot of you. And at one point, he's uh, talking to an, an ex-flame named Kara, and he says, still picking your teeth with the freshman? And she says, well, you were a freshman once. And he says, way once, sister. And I don't know, just all these little turns of phrases that are just very unique. It, it definitely is heavily inspired from those classic noirs, but... It's also just its own invented way of speaking that's like a weird blend of a lot of different things and its own made-up cadence to it. So I don't know. I was enjoying the music of it and the rhythm of it. Yeah, it's definitely distinctive. But I, I thought it was kind of interesting when like the one blurb I'd seen about this movie was, it's a noir, but in a modern high school. And it's like, well, you know, how? what side of that balance does it mostly fall on? <laughs> I would say it's more noir than modern high school. I, I agree. Yeah. I kind of preluded this with talking about high school movies and how many I've seen. I feel like if a movie is too far into its genre and too far away from coming of age themes, can you even really call it a high school movie anymore? Like to me, Back to the Future is borderline, but I don't really consider that a high school movie because coming of age is not a central theme. And that's kind of like a prerequisite for me to really think of it as a high school movie. And this movie, the high schoolness is pretty central, but it still is just like a mystery movie. There's not much in the way of coming of age themes here. You're right. It's more noir than high school movie for me, at least. Mm -hmm. But what we get over the next half hour or so is we kind of meet one character after another, and we learn that this is a complex social environment, stereotypical of what you might see in, in a Dashiell Hammett noir novel hard-boiled detective with a lot of the stock characters but spins on the stock characters so we learn there is a drug kingpin and this is the pin that emily mentioned in her note there's kind of the dumb muscle who gets things done this is tug there's the lady in red the femme fatale who's always shows up when trouble is around and she's laura by the way, one thing I wanted to complain about is the names, other than a couple of the nicknames, like the pin and tug, 
the names are kind of generic. There's a Laura and a Kara and a Brad. And I was like, I don't know. They ran together for me a little bit here. Yeah. And I mean, that tends to happen with so many quickly introduced characters anyway. And there's like multiple muscle characters Mm -hmm. who come to beat Brendan up. And it's kind of hard to tell them apart uh, until they develop Tug a little more as the movie goes. Right. (laughs) One thing it reminded me of early on was uh, there's an episode of Family Matters that's done in the style of a noir, like narrated by Steve Urkel. (laughs) And that's what I was thinking of. Uh, It gets more (laughs) serious than that. It it plays it straighter than Family Matters. But uh, as far as it being set in a high school, uh, it was, I was seeing some parallels. Oh, that's good. And there's a character named Laura, obviously. Right, right. Some of the other characters we get to know there's the femme fatale's current lover boy is a guy named Brad Bramish. And he's, I think, the only black character. There's this big jock. There's a small-time dealer who also happens to be the ex of Brendan. And I'm now eating my words because she's another black character. Her name is Kara. We also learned that there's someone who died who kind of kicked off this whole drama some guy named Frisco who we never meet because he died before the story started. There's a dealer that Brendan ratted out at some point named Jer. And of course, there's the cop trying to make inroads, or I guess you could just call him the authority figure. He's not really a cop here, but he plays the role of the cop and he's VP Truman. And of course, the wrinkle on all these guys and the, the almost novelty, almost gimmick of this film is that every single one of these is not just a noir stereotype, but they're a high school movie stereotype. Everything about this whole scene is adapted to fit what you would consider a high school movie. You got, instead of uh, which crowd you're hanging out with, it's who you're eating lunch with that comes up a couple times. I thought that was so funny. I I liked that a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Who's she eating with? like yeah i mean i guess i guess it works that way if you're eating lunch with somebody you're probably associated with them right but joseph gordon levitt especially seemed to put a lot of import on that she's not eating with me anymore who's she eating with (laughs) one thing the brain says it can be hard to keep track of these things because lunch well lunch is a lot of things lunch is difficult (laughs) that was pretty good (laughs) yeah he's like so the brain to who we've been calling JGL, he says, so where you been eating? And Joseph Gordon-Levitt says, behind the school. He's like, yeah, we haven't seen you in a while. So I don't know. I like picturing him just like crouched behind the building. In particular, they say eating lunch behind the portables. So I'm imagining him sitting next to some port johns At one point, he calls it brown bagging, like his peanut butter and jelly. Out of a Ziploc bag and a, and a brown paper bag. I thought that was pretty funny. Some other things that kind of tie it more to a high school setting than a hard-boiled detective setting in the classical sense, where you would expect there to be a seedy, smoky bar. Instead, it's a coffee shop. Or, sorry, a coffee and pie shop where the burnouts hang out. And the coffee and pie shop also seems very Twin Peaks. That's got to be an intentional reference. Coffee and pie. That's what Agent Cooper always orders. In Twin Peaks, instead of a cop, it's an assistant principal who likes suspending kids. 
one of the tough guys is just a jock on the football team. I kind of alluded to this when I was talking about the dead body and are we sure that she was actually dead? One thing this movie does, I don't know, it struck me and maybe this is all just me and not the movie itself. I didn't even think this movie was 100% clear until pretty far into the film, like halfway into the film, that we're actually dealing with like very serious criminal activity here. It's not just like a hyper-stylized depiction of normal high school life things, but we're dealing with like heroin and murder and guns and things like that. It kind of kept me on on my toes a little bit because I kept expecting there to be some sort of twist where, oh, no, it's just another little high school thing that is just being played up for, for stylized drama. But it definitely goes there for the darkness and the brutality of the the story rather than staying in your traditional coming of age realm. Right. So we learn pretty quickly, and this is like a <laughs> recurring and I thought pretty enjoyable thread. Brendan, when he wants to learn something or do something, he's going to throw his body into it. And it will usually mean throwing fists with people who are much bigger and stronger than him and him just getting the crap kicked out of him. Although he holds his own. Yeah, he's a pretty good fighter. I was surprised. He's scrappy. They made it, you know, seem at least a little believable that he would fare how he does in the film. So the the femme fatale figure, her name is Laura. Her kind of pedigree here is that she is a, I guess not a brainy type. That would probably be the brain. But she's like the prep, I guess. She's rich and Ivy League bound and we meet her early hosting a party. It's the Halloween in January party. Have you ever attended one of these, Brian? No, I mean, I haven't been invited to a lot of parties in general, at least not in high school, but uh, uh, this is the new one to me. It seems kind of like Summerween from Gravity Falls. That's right, yeah. And I think she wears her most iconic outfit there. It's a red kimono. The first couple times we see her, she's always in red, and I think she always has some red article whenever we see her, but she gives Brendan enough of a lead to help him find Emily. Cause he's, you know, of course still trying to find Emily who made the panicked phone call. And he does indeed catch up with Emily on Laura's tip, but she kind of pushes back saying that, Oh, don't worry about me. I'm okay. You can't take care of me. It's fine. But he, manages to like swipe from her bag or her pocket or something a note that has a symbol on it it's like an arch symbol and it has a meeting time that's midnight and we see him trying to figure out what does this mean what is this arch symbol and he he doesn't seem to figure it out before bed but then he he wakes up and he kind of sketches in around the symbol and it seems to occur to him what the symbol is supposed to represent. Yeah, so he puts together that it's like the tunnel in the storm drain sewer place that we saw in the opening shot. But like what prompts him to realize that is he has a dream with a pretty interesting special effect where he's standing there at the drain and this garbage bag comes like flying out like a red carpet unrolling, but it's black garbage bag and it like washes over him and then it cuts to him in his bed and 
a garbage bag gets like whisked off of him. It's like a dream world blending into the real world, like Freddy Krueger almost. Very jarring and pretty cool. Yeah, kind of creepy. And interesting that he's having visions of death here before he actually knows there will be death here. Right. What did you take the archway symbol to be before it was explained? You mean like on the piece of paper? Yeah, like what did you think it was? I think I figured it out right away, but I can't remember. Where did you think it was? I mean, it looks like, if I'm being generous, like a weird letter A, like a rounded letter A, but I think it looks like a the tip of a penis. It was like <laughs> it looked like a mushroom head. Interesting. I mean, that's what I saw. I think I was just ready for us to catch up with the original starting point this whole time. So as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, that's what that is. But <laughs> I'll go and see if I see the the penis there next time I watch. I, I also like the the archway, the symbol. It made me think a little bit of the fifth Harry Potter story and movie where there's an archway, which is the gateway to death. And I thought that was kind of cool and evocative and scary because when he finally gets there, whenever we see this storm drain, it's very dark on the inside. It just ominous. Thought it was shot pretty cool. Um, but he does indeed go there early the next morning. And he does, in fact, find pretty unequivocally em- Emily lying there dead. We're, we've met back up with the in medias race scene from the beginning of the film. And at this point, Brendan kind of vows to get the whole story of what's going on. And so we get more of him kind of probing around these various characters. What What's their story? He finds the one jock, Brad Bramish, I think his name is, and tries to figure out at this point, he doesn't know who the pin is yet. And he gets in this really brutal fight with Brad Bramish. I think it's one of the first fights we see, maybe the first one. And, and they have a good throwdown. And I think Brad Bramish is the current boyfriend of the femme fatale character. Who's just always right on the edge of whatever's happening while he's kind of roaming around. He just, he spots a distinctive black sports car, which Viewers will recall because we saw a flash of a distinctive black sports car earlier in the film when Brendan was talking to Emily. And the man that we encounter here is, in fact, Tug. He, he's going to be an important character here. He's got an interesting look. He's always wearing a white tank top and a white bandana. And he looks like Ryan from the O.C., I don't know if you've seen the OC, Brian, but he's kind of this short, stocky white guy with kind of a pale complexion. And he's kind of like the the lead muscle guy for, for the drug crew here, which we gradually catch on to. There's um, a really cool scene here where he's going to try to break into the black car, but then he ends up fighting Tug. And then Tug like drives away, but then we slowly see him drive back and almost run over Brendan. Yeah, this scene is super cool. And it might have been the first, but it was one of many moments that made me think of Breaking Bad. This is another instance where I'm pulling Breaking Bad into the conversation, even though the film came out long before the show. But just having like a tense moment that then seems like it's deflated and diffused and 
things are going to calm down. And then, you know, you have that tense moment of, of beat, beat, beat. And then all of a sudden it's at a hundred again, it's fully intense. And this car comes screaming past Joseph Gordon-Levitt, like just missing him at the last second. And it's, it's really impressively shot and edited. It gets your pulse pounding. Agreed. Yeah. I like this scene. So the, this character tug eventually relents and agrees to bring Brendan to the pin who is kind of the big time drug dealer around which everything is revolving. And so he takes him to this mid century suburban home. I really love this setting. There's lots of bad wood paneling, ugly carpet, tacky wallpaper, and I just think it's funny that like this is like a sense of irony to it that this criminal den is like peak placid suburbia, tacky classic suburbia. What did you think of this house that the pin was at? I thought this was great. This whole reveal of since we've built up that this is the kingpin of the drug operation. And so you're just left to picture in your mind for a long time what this guy is going to look like. And then it turns out that he is maybe the most realistic embodiment of the modern high school setting. Like he's just a high school dork who for some reason is in charge of everything. But he he lives in a normal lame house and he's like a, I don't know what the right word is, like a neck beard. And I I know that that's glass houses and all, but he's just this dweeby dude he, yeah. he carries around a cane with a duck head and he wears this like mantle, like an old style Victorian cloak. <laughs> yeah, no, he's a fun character. Very funny. And and when he brings in the people to like meet with him at these big uh, powwows that they do, his mom is serving everybody juice. Like lemonade, asking him what kind of lemonade they want or something like that. I thought that was fun. You're right, he's a dweeb, and that just totally adds to the fun of this character. So Laura, the femme fatale, once again appears at the Pin's house, and she quickly tries to make a move on Brendan. You know, she's the femme fatale. That's what she's going to be trying to do. It's just part of the story. And one thing that we gradually piece together around now is that Emily, the the girl that died before she died, she was involved with multiple people romantically. So one is Dode, the burnout, who's someone we met early on at the the pie and coffee place. But another, and just as importantly, is she was romantically involved with Tug, the the muscle character, the guy with the white tank top and the white, white bandana. And things actually take a turn for the worse for Brendan here because dode somehow gets in touch with brendan and shares that he actually saw brendan with emily's dead body and can actually turn him in for this murder at this point so now brendan's on edge because he can be given the blame for the murder and the body at this point is concealed deep within the storm drain so it's not widely known yet that that emily is dead because brendan hit it but if dode can basically reveal that then that it certainly makes brendan look bad that was a creepy shot when he just hoists the body over his shoulder and drags it off into the sewer I, yeah oh 
I wouldn't touch it. I mean, I guess it's got to be concealed if he's going to go about his mystery business. But like, I don't know. He was just very cavalier about touching the corpse. I, I think I would have a hesitation. Yeah. No, me too. Brendan gets down to some dirty business in this for sure. That's another piece of the film noir bit is that our hero is not really a hero. He's just as dirty as everyone else. In fact, in some ways more so. And he has to do some nasty things to get stuff done. At one point when we're in this 1970s suburban house, classic what you'd see in I don't know, like Long Island, I'm thinking. I don't know. Wherever suburbs proliferated and you got all the tacky stylings of suburbia, that's where this house would be. But at one point, Brendan is poking around there and we get one of the most visually interesting scenes of the movie. He finds this dark basement room and he is exploring it. And the way that he's looking around is there's sunlight coming through a window and he's using the mirror to redirect the light to look around the room. And it's just a very striking, shadowy use of light. And that's when he discovers the titular brick. We see him like zoom in on a uh, just this little, I don't know, package of white powder. That That is the brick. What did you think of the scene, Brian? Yeah, it was neat. Uh, I mean, I knew what the brick was going to be. Right. So this wasn't like too mind blowing that he does find it. Um, but the the use of the mirror was cool. And it just so happens that Tug is in this room watching Brendan do whatever he's doing. And they kind of butt heads for a bit, but ultimately have a heart to heart. And Tug reveals that there was this big drug deal involving 10 bricks of heroin. Eight were sold. One has remained in the basement for Pin to deal. And the last one, the Pin was going to start dealing. But someone skimmed the heroin to deal themselves and refilled it with something poisonous, which is ultimately what kicked off all this bad business because the character Frisco, who again, we never meet, but as mentioned, died from using this drug. So now the mysteries are kind of piling on each other as they tend to do in these noirs. So who's the person who actually messed with the one bad brick is the other brick still good, etc. And then also around this time, the pin gets invited to a rendezvous and he brings along both Tug and Brendan where they're going to learn the fate of Emily. So the pin at this point doesn't actually know that Emily is dead, I guess. And this rendezvous is going to culminate at the archway we learn. And the way we learn this is that he gets an invitation with the archway symbol and a time on it. It's the one that we saw earlier in the movie. Yeah, which means that a second person has drawn this symbol the exact same way. So for some reason, they have this shorthand that this is the symbol that represents the storm drain. <laughs> um, but no, this is really cool and compelling because Dode has called everybody together because he's going to announce who killed Emily. And what we understand, the viewers, is that he's going to implicate Brendan because he saw Brendan moving the corpse. But different characters have different expectations of what he's going to say. Right. On our way to this scene, Brendan actually bumps into Dode. 
and and we know that Dode was romantically involved with Emily when she died. And this is where we get one of the major reveals of the movie, which is that Emily was actually pregnant when she died. And in fact, Dode says she was pregnant with Dode's baby, with, with his baby. And he so he's devastated that she died. Not only was she his lover, but she was carrying his baby. And so that adds weight to everything that is happening here. Once we get to the storm drain itself, we get one of the best scenes in the movie. It's an extremely tense scene where we're waiting for Dode to announce who the murderer is. And Brendan is kind of trying to talk him down and trying to get him to not say anything or for everybody to ignore him. But the pin and tug are listening very attentively to what Dode is going to say. And as you mentioned, we're, we're thinking that it's going to be Brendan implicated and things are going to go downhill for him. But the tension just stamps up and up and up. And all of a sudden, Tug just loses it. And he snaps and he beats down Dode and then shoots and kills him. And it all happens very abruptly. And then we cut to a scene. By the way, I should mention, I, I don't think I mentioned yet. As this movie goes along and Brendan, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, gets more and more beat up, he starts to have fainting spells where he can like barely maintain consciousness and has to like drag himself. I guess from like all the internal bleeding, he's also like lost a lot of sleep at this point and stuff. It's an interesting effect. It's like pseudo-realism that a 17-year-old getting the shit kicked out of him every, you know, two hours probably wouldn't do a body good no he's having a rough time but after this act of violence by tug um brendan fully collapses and wakes up to tug basically confessing that he was the one who killed emily and in fact the reason that he killed emily i think i don't even remember exactly this is a noir thing why exactly did he decide he was going to kill emily was it because he was jealous or was it a drug related thing? I can't remember. Do you remember, Brian? I don't know what set him off either, but uh, the key is that he thought Emily's baby was his. Did you say that already? I don't know if I did, but he was romantically involved with Emily and he believed the baby was his. Yeah, man. It seems like everybody was involved with everybody else, but <laughs> certainly multiple people had vested interests in this Emily to the yeah. point that they believed that the baby was theirs. Right. And now that this tension has come to a boiling point and there has been a savage act of violence, we have pretty clearly set up who the two big bads of the movie are. And they are Tug and The Pin. And it seems as if they are on the verge of what they keep calling war. I don't know exactly what war entails like in this scenario. But they, they keep talking about war and how they want to avoid it. Brendan organizes a peace negotiation between Tug and the Pin at the Pin's iconic house. It's a better war than vampires versus vampanese. <laughs> I won't disagree with that. Meanwhile, Brendan's still recovering. The Laura character, so she's the femme fatale. She, she comes in and Brendan finally kind of breaks down and his hard shell is broken as Laura comes in and we can see that Brendan is kind of processing the trauma of losing Emily. 
and she expresses what appears to be quite genuine affection for him and begs him, don't go to this, this summit between Tug and the pin. It'll be so dangerous for you. But not only is Brendan going to be going, he, he's cooking up a scheme. He's got some stuff. We don't know exactly what it is, but we see him coordinating things with the brain and moving things. And all of a sudden we see Emily's dead body in the trunk, which was unexpected. Okay, so that was what yes. was going on there. I, I was confused why he had the body. So the gist of it is he's, we don't know exactly why, but he's setting things up in a certain way. So a certain thing will happen. Oh, right, right. But he does indeed intend this this peace negotiation, this summit. And honestly, at first, it seems like it's going really well. So we have the tug and the pin there. And like the pin is basically saying, all right, we're breaking ties with each other. You're going to take the fall. You give me the brick and we're good. But just when it seems like it's it's going good, things get tense. They disagree on how they'll know the brick is good. Who's going to taste the drug to know that the drug is good and not poisonous. And it grows more and more tense. And in this really interesting bit of design, we hear things go south, not in the room, but outside the room. Like we hear gunshots and fighting and everybody's like kind of looking towards the wall, wondering what's going on. The very interesting way for like the catalyst of this climax to actually occur right well also there was a moment where it deflates for a moment because brendan steps up and says hey look i'll take the drug guys we don't need to fight i'll do it and so we get you know a a moment a beat where it seems like okay maybe nobody's gonna die here but then yes guns in the background right it kicks off just this orgy of violence tug snaps he starts like just brutally beating down the dweeby pin character like you know when they cut away from the character and blood is splattering it's like one of those types of beatdowns the cops arrive and brendan manages to bail at exactly the correct moment we also learn that the last brick has just vanished it just disappeared the one that the pin was going to deal and the pin immediately blames tug, which is actually what sets off tugs anger as Brendan escapes. Uh, we see him the next morning, Laura, the femme fatale character meets him on the football field. I love the high school setting on the football field and they seem to genuinely reconnect. We learn from Laura that some of the news of the damage has come out both the pin and tug have died from the scuffle. Three other people died during the violence and the cops found Emily's body during all the carnage. And she's just glad that he survived, you know, but Brendan turns things on her and we learn this is a big twist. Laura, the femme fatale, the lady in red and the kimono. She's the one who's been pulling the strings the whole time. And he shares all this in this monologue. She framed Emily for getting messed up in the drug stuff and and being a part of the bad brick. She manipulated everyone, made everyone think that Emily was pregnant with their baby. She was the one who skimmed the money from the brick that went bad. Not only that, but as he reveals it, he reveals that part of his whole plan that he set up the last night was to 
rat her out to the the vice principal and the police and the police so that she ends up taking the fall for everything. Really well done final twist here or let's say penultimate twist here. I thought it was cool how it tied everything together and brought it back on this one character that we knew was shady. Maybe glimmers of actual affection, but I don't know. What did you think of this this last monologue here, Brian? It worked for me. I thought it was a good revelation and resolution. I didn't feel as confused as I do at the end of some other noirs that I've seen. I, I had followed up to this point. I'm glad they kind of laid it out what was going on. Yeah, getting one last recap definitely helps too. But then we get the final, final twist where Laura betrayed thinking that Brendan has actually fallen for her wiles. She's got one last card up her sleeve and she reveals that Emily was indeed pregnant, but she wasn't recently pregnant. She had been pregnant for at least three months, which means that the baby was Brendan's. It wasn't Tug's. It wasn't Dode's. It was Brendan's baby because they broke up about three months ago. And that's kind of her mic drop. One final, just brutal gut punch for Brendan, just piling on the tragedy, ending on this bleak note for, for Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character. I thought this amped up this this final scene one further level. I thought it was a great final twist. And that's how Brick 2005 concludes. Ugh. Whew. Did you hang on there, Brian? I did. I, I followed. <laughs> Hopefully that was the right level of detail of reviewing the story. There's lots of good stuff in there and just also lots of stuff in there. So mm-hmm. um, let's talk about some good things and some not so good things. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one thing I liked, we've talked a little bit about is just the Twin Peaks vibe of this sort of modern, but sort of classical town where Everything is sour and dark and bad and everybody's involved in something. And there's always someone ready to be even more evil than they initially appeared. And I just liked this vibe as applied to the small town high school. I thought it, I thought it worked really well. It created a very palpable setting. I picked up on the Twin Peaks elements as well. I think that had has got to be intentional, some of it. I also want to call out again the Breaking Bad vibes, which is not a vibe that I've run into other places really too much. Um, it's like a combination of like gangster movies, but also with some like dark humor in the mix. You know, violent action that's slickly edited with a comic tinge. Uh, there's one scene specifically where uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is getting chased by another muscle guy who I don't even think is connected to the whole mystery thing. I think he was just hired by the jock to like beat him up again. Right. But he's running after Joseph Gordon-Levitt all around the school, very tense and timed well and shot well. And you can follow that as he's being chased, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is putting together a plan in his head. And he does this like, looney tunes duck into a a corner but give the pursuer the impression that he's continuing on down the hallway and uh, he's able to like stick his leg out into the hall and 
trip the guy and send him flying straight into a metal pole and it makes a cartoonish <laughs> bong it, it like rings the pole and it's simultaneously really shocking like to the point that you almost feel the pain but still pretty funny with the like cartoony sound effect he does like the slow slide down the pole as his face smacks into it no i agree there there was a lot of that and you already mentioned the one where tug drives away and then drives back and almost hits him yeah definitely moments where the timing of the violence has a comedic element to it definitely and i mean that's that's part of the breaking bad vibe that i I like as well, just anytime there's some tense confrontation between characters and then you get a pause where it seems like, oh, maybe this is diffused. Maybe everything is going to be okay. And then, you know, the car comes roaring back out of the distance. There's a sudden resuming of intensity. Right. And every time that happened in this movie, I was into it, like uh, the shooting in the sewer and especially the, the big final showdown at the pins house. Yeah. For sure. Another thing I really liked is the cast. Other than Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I didn't really recognize people, but I thought everybody fit their role really well. And just a lot of compelling energy and chemistry and friction. I'm wondering why more of these people haven't broken out because I thought they were all really good. Did you have any favorites? I liked the brain. I was wondering, yeah, if I had seen some of these actors other places and I Googled some of the names and, and didn't really see them pop up. Um, but you're right that they fit their roles well. Uh, I was wondering, how did this compare to your high school experience, Dan? Did you see <laughs> many parallels? I didn't see that many, but uh, I'm curious. No, I would say probably the most was how important where you ate lunch was. That was like one of the big things at our high school. You can eat at any, you can eat in the hallway, you can eat outside, you can eat at the classroom, you can eat in the Magic the Gathering hallway, which always smelled like B.O. Anywhere you wanted to, you, you could eat lunch. And so that was like, to the extent that there was a crystallized social strata in our high school, that was the way that you could pierce it apart. And that, that was the thing that maybe didn't relate to, but at least appreciated no, you're right. Um, I do recognize that as well. Although just in the two years between us, they changed some of the lunch policies. It became a little less free. Well, that's too bad. Uh, specifically, what they got rid of was off-campus lunch. But still anywhere in the school you could eat. Mm. Even behind the port johns if you wanted to. The portables. I was particularly fond of, in addition to JGL, I was really smitten by the the character Laura who played the one who I've repeatedly referred to as the femme fatale that she's played by Nora Zahetner who I looked up and she has not been in anything else I've seen and not too many prominent things or at least in prominent roles which is too bad because I thought she had some good energy in this movie. I, I thought she was uh, magnetic. Yeah, I agree. I also thought the plot worked really well. We talked in the DOA episode, that one, the twistiness, when it got to the point where it was doing the whole noir, oh, here's a new character, here's what we need to know about them, but hold on, 30 seconds later, the things you thought you needed to know about them were all wrong. They're betraying someone else, and they have all these other 
set of relationships and motives. And oh, wait, as soon as you realize this, we're on to something else. I thought the cadence of it worked a lot better in this movie than in DOA and some other noirs that I've seen. I was pretty invested the whole time. It was never like, well, bullshit's going to happen. So bullshit's going to happen. It was like, I was like, oh, my God. Like every time there was a revelation. So I don't know. What did you think of this one compared to DOA on the the plot twistiness front? Oh, I liked it better across the board. I was able to understand and appreciate the twists better. You know, there was no weird like 15 minutes at the start where a guy goes on vacation, but it's not really clear why. And he just seems to kind of be waiting for something to happen to him here you're you're thrust into the action right away and you understand the problem that this girl is dead i this one's going to get a higher rating from me i just think the screenplay both the story and the dialogue really compelling really strong just a good story very well crafted with lots of fascinating and compelling bits of construction it's not quite on the boogie nights level where you're just marveling how someone managed to put all this together at the goddamn age of 25 or whatever he was when he made that. But it's not too far from that. This movie's really well made with lots of cool shots and cool scenes and, and memorable stuff. Yeah, I agree. I just think it, it, it really shines overall. I really like the stylized dialogue, as I mentioned. Although one of the moments that made me laugh really hard was when it kind of <laughs> this is the moment when the dweebiness of the pin really shined and he's like kind of having a reflection with Brendan, the Joseph Gordon-Levin character. And he says, you read Tolkien? And Brendan says, what? And the pin says, you know, the Hobbit books. Brendan says, yeah. The pin says, his descriptions of things are really good. He makes you want to be there. And the earnestness with which this is delivered just made me crack up as I was watching it. I don't know if you enjoyed this exchange too, Brian. Well, you built it up. I did end up liking it. It definitely is the kind of thing a guy who wears a mantle to school would say. Mm-hmm. My last good thing that I wanted to mention on this movie, this movie as a noir pastiche, it's beyond a pastiche. It's, it's just a neo-noir. But it reminded me of a book series that I read that I really, really like. And this is actually aimed at tweens. It's kind of middle grade. It's a book series called All the Wrong Questions. And it's written by the author with the pseudonym of Lemony Snicket, who is, of course, much better known for the series of Unfortunate Events books. But he wrote this four book series where it's written in the first person. It's about Lemony Snicket himself when he was a teen, where he took this summer, I think it's a summer, maybe a year, in a small town called Stained by the Sea. And the whole thing is a huge noir mystery pastiche. The first book is like a Maltese Falcon riff, and the other ones have different elements. The, the last one is on a train. And there, of course, have been multiple prominent mystery stories that take place on a train. And so I really like that. That series, it doesn't go into darkness the way that this one does. Like, it does the thing that I was kind of alluding to earlier, where 
has the stylings of a noir, but it's really a little bit lighter than that. And part of it is like, maybe not ironic, but just like embracing the style in a different setting for striking and comedic effect. Although it does have plenty of serious things going on. But with that as my point of comparison, I was definitely thinking of it and and, uh, making that comparison. So if you're looking for something maybe in this vein, but lighter, I recommend that book series. Interesting. Did you have any other good things you wanted to add here, Brian? I think I've called out most of them. Definitely had some good things to say, though. Uh, I was vibing with the film. What about, were there any things you, you didn't like quite as much, Dan? So on that note of the, the slightly lighter book series, given that this movie was like playing with our expectations and having to be in a high school, the fact that it ended up going just absolutely bleak as the movie progressed, lots of murder, lots of drugs, talk of abortions and teen pregnancies and violence and all this. I wondered if it went too dark, but I feel like it stuck the landing in a way that was very satisfying and it didn't ultimately bother me. It was just darker than I was expecting it to go. So did you have that impression at all? Huh? I'm not quite sure. I mean, it does start with a corpse and then pretty shortly after that, there's discussion of this drug deal gone wrong on the phone. Right. Uh, so I, I knew we were treading pretty dark waters. I don't know if I expected like everybody to die as a lot of them do, but no, I, I thought it reached a satisfying conclusion that wasn't too um, out of the blue for me. One thing that we didn't say, there's this moment when everything snaps and everything's going to hell and Tug starts beating the pin where you're wondering, oh, who's Brendan going to help? Who's Brendan going to side with? Because the pin's screaming, Brendan, help me. Uh, and, you know, they had that bonding conversation about Tolkien. <laughs> so it's like, what's, what's Brendan going to do? But Brendan kind of grabs the gun off the floor before either of those guys can get it. And, and so then again, you're thinking, well, what's he going to do with the gun? Is he going to shoot somebody? Is he going to get one person off the other person? Uh, and then he's backing out of the room. So, oh, is he going to, he's going to drop the gun. He's going to throw the gun away. What's he going to do? And it, he did like the last thing that I expected, which is he gets himself out of the room and then he kicks the gun back into the room. <laughs> so like just stir in the pot. I guess, like hoping somebody will grab the gun and get the upper hand, but because he's out of the line of sight, he'll have plausible deniability. I don't know, but it was, you mentioned, I think you, you said a couple of minutes ago, like an, Oh, moment. That's a sound I found myself making a couple of times while I watched this movie, like the, uh, the reaction gif of the rap battle where the guy like, Macaulay Culkin clutches his face and falls out of the frame just going oh yeah there's definitely moments of that for sure I was feeling that any other things you did not like about this movie that you wanted to call out Brian I was not entirely won over by the weird stylistic dialogue it it sucked me out of it at the start it grew on me a little as the movie went along but it it just still felt even faker than 
you know, it's kind of a leap in logic that the like everyday school kids are involved in these big crimes. But I mean, I don't know where you live. That could be going on somewhere. <laughs> uh, but the the weird dialogue pulled me out a bit. Okay, it wasn't it wasn't movie breaking for me, but it was odd and it never really stopped being odd. Well, I guess that brings us to our signature section. Is it good? Listeners will know that we rate the movies we watch on a eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good. That's a one out of eight up to our masterpiece rating, a tour day good, an eight out of eight. We've each given a few eight out of eights in our day. Not too many, very not goods. One each, I think. But Brian, I'm curious. Is Brick 2005 good? So I ended up liking this one a lot. It captured the spirit that I feel in Breaking Bad, which is one of my favorite TV shows. I I think I said at the end of our Gravity Falls ep that uh, it's one of only like maybe two that I would put over Gravity Falls in terms of how much I like it. And so anything that captures that feeling of like dark, funny crime action, I'm going to be into. And that show is just way too long to responsibly tell you to watch it for an episode. So I I think this, uh, this just about gets us to some of those discussion points. And uh, yeah, I liked it. All the cast is is well chosen. The story is well told. I wasn't too much in the dark. So for me, Brick 2005 from Ryan Johnson gets an exceptionally good, a seven out of eight. There we go. High praise. Where does it land for you, Dan? Man, I adored this movie. I thought it was amazing. I just loved the universe I love the characters, the acting. I really did dig the way they talked. It was music to my ears. I wanted to keep hearing it. I thought it was funny, but like tense and dark and well-directed and various kind of gimmicky things it did ended up really fleshing out the story. And this whole like high school blended with hard-boiled tone just landed for me, man. I loved it. But is it a masterpiece? It might be, Brian. This might movie might be a masterpiece. This might be, ultimately, it might place in my top 100 whenever I finally make a top 100 movies. But given that so much of it is about revelations and about surprises and gut punches and, oh my God, did she actually just say that? And it was her all along that's hard for me to call a masterpiece out of the gate. There have been a few movies where I've given it a seven and said, this might be an eight. I just need to watch it again to give it the masterpiece rating, to give it a tour day good. Those include Parasite, Boogie Nights, American Graffiti. This might be the highest that seven that I can give. I'm not going to quite give it the masterpiece rating. I'm close. Because I really did love this movie and I highly recommend it if you like noirs or high school movies or things that just have a really weird and dark and goofy but like brutal tone. I was here for it, man. I, I was riveted from start to finish, but especially at the finish. Great ending to the movie. 
The Warriors can be hard to stick the landing. This one really does. It was a great surprise for something I had never even heard of to win me over. I like this one. I agree. It's exceptionally good. Two sevens. There we go. Boom. 14 club. I don't know if that's a club we actually track. 15 and 16 are, but. Well, who knows? This could get there in a in a revision. Perhaps. Uh, it's it's only the, the first episode of this new block of 25, but uh, <laughs> I think it's at least a contender for um, biggest surprise, best surprise for me. Right. So, Brian, what are we going to be watching next week? So it's true that this is the time of year for going back to school. I also think of it as being the time of year for the Maryland Renaissance Festival. Now, I have selected a film that was largely shot at the Maryland Renaissance Festival. Uh, One of our biggest fans, a guy named Sean, who, by the way, just let me know that he has caught up and has uh, heard all of our episodes so far now. Wow. He's one of the few. Yeah. Uh, But he requested that there be more obscure coverage, kind of in the vein of our heavy metal parking lot and uh, lasagna cat episode. So I've selected something that I think is pretty, uh, pretty out there, pretty uh, deep cut, or you might say bottom of the barrel. Uh, This is a film called Max Magician and the Legend of the Ring from uh, 2002, very much an indie film, you could say. People who deride it say it's it's a ripoff of Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, which obviously were both big at that time. Uh, but it is so far out of that league financially that I, I don't know if you could even <laughs> compare it to either of those. <laughs> so I, I want to watch this and talk about it. Nice. I'm stoked. And the Ren Fair is coming up. We could think about going. I don't know if we could get the logistics to work, but that could be fun. Yeah, we, we might have to arrange another goods field trip. Uh, I've certainly got a lot of Renaissance Fair discussion to tie into this talk. Excellent. Brian, this was fun. It always is. Now that you've heard from us listeners, we want to hear from you. Email us a review of Brick or any film we've previously discussed. Each week, once we start getting submissions, Sean, you can send us one. We'll read one of your reviews on the podcast. If we pick your review, we will send you a $5 Amazon gift card. Enough for a free movie rental. You can send your review to the goods film podcast at gmail.com. That's the goods film podcast at gmail.com and we look forward to hearing from you yeah thanks everybody for listening hope you tune in again have a good evening everyone goodbye